0: Welcome to Junior Doctors' Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stack! guys so this episode is a bit late it was supposed to have come out yesterday but I'm really sorry I just came off a set of night shifts so I was really tired and I didn't get around to doing it but here it is today Um, this episode is extra long but is extra important because we have covered the topic of sexual harassment. I think it's something that's not covered very well in medical schools or even any hospitals um, because there it actually happens a lot more often than we realize and I think um, we junior doctors are in a very vulnerable position and we need to be able to protect ourselves and you know learn these techniques or strategies that Dr. Louise Stone, um, who is an expert in this area, she will go through this um, with us. The other special thing about this episode is that it was recorded live. So what that means is we did it on the Facebook group, the Junior Doctors Corner Community Facebook group. So we had our live listeners join in on the discussion so if you want to get in on the action for the next live interview, which I'm hoping will happen really soon, and it will be on the topic of, um, you know, imposter syndrome slash, um, you know, dealing with our own inner um, self-criticism, please go ahead and click join. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, I'd really, really appreciate it if you took five seconds to leave a review on itunes what this does is help boost the visibility of this podcast and spread the love and joy um, to other junior doctors if you've been enjoying the podcast i'd really appreciate if you take five seconds to leave a review on itunes it does help with the visibility of the podcast All right, I think that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump right into the episode. So let's jump right into this. We've kept uh, people waiting long enough, so I apologize, everyone. Thank you so much for your patience. And thank you so much, Dr. Louise Stone, for jumping on live with me um, to talk on Junior Doctor's Corner podcast.
1: You're most welcome. I'm so sorry, everyone, for the technical difficulties. You think being married to an IT person, I'd have worked this one out, but um, (laughs) there you go.
0: (laughs) No worries at all. So um, as I mentioned before, Dr. Louise Stone um, has a lot of experience on the topic of sexual harassment and bullying. especially working with, um, junior doctors. So Louise, you've done research projects on bullying and sexual harassment of doctors by doctors specifically. Um, but before we dive into the details of, um, one of these or all of your projects, um, can you please share with us what prompted you to start?
1: Sure. So um, one of the things, uh, I'm a GP, so one of the things that happens in general practice research often is that our research is often stimulated by things that happen in clinical practice. So from my point of view, what happened with me was I looked after an intern who'd been raped by her boss. And mm. one of the things that um, is really difficult, different for me, I guess, is that I do a lot of complex mental health work. So. It's really not unusual for me to see somebody who's been a victim of sexual assault. I've spent all my life doing complex mental health work, so that's not unusual for me. But but I realized that what made this consultation extremely tricky was, of course, he was a doctor, I was a doctor, and she was a doctor, so there were obviously complexities in that therapeutic relationship, and I know that for junior doctors particularly, it's really stressful. I mean, it's hard enough when you're a senior, but it's really stressful going and seeing another doctor for your own health concerns, let alone for something that's as sensitive as this. So it took me a long time to gain her trust, and um, it got me thinking that maybe other people had been in this space. So at the time, I was running GP training in Australia, so I talked to a lot of my colleagues who were senior and asked if they'd had similar consultations and they all had, but there was nothing in the literature. So I joined with a colleague of mine who's a GP anthropologist and another GP who's a professor of general practice and really good with um, health systems and a whole lot of experts for things I knew nothing about, like law and, um, you know, HR and... Uh, oh, psychiatry and psychotherapy and methodology and all sorts of other things who formed a, a volunteer reference group. So after three years of um, research, I, I ended up producing the paper. And I think the thing that um, struck me most about it was, was very much – the culture of silence. Um, I think medical students in some ways have a little bit of support because they're still at university. So there's still university health services and so on, but junior doctors are relatively unprotected. And I think often don't realize that GPs, um, we're we're a bit lucky, we're not employed by hospitals. So we're a little bit external, which means we can um, advocate for junior doctors without um, putting any of our career at risk because the hospitals don't own us and after i'd started the research project was when all the information about caroline tan came out um the neurosurgeon who'd been sexually harassed um, and was outed by a senior surgeon and then of course john kearsley was tried and convicted in a criminal court for assaulting his registrar and suddenly it became a lot more public so i guess that's where i came from um It was just something that I I guess I was exposed to.
0: Thank you so much for doing your work, you know, doing what you do because it's so important, I think, that um, although not every medical student or junior doctor will, you know, experience the most horrible outcome, you know, rape and all that, I think that um, a lot of – Little things happen, you know, like that, that are still classified as sexual harassment. And unfortunately, I think um, the coverage or education around this topic is still a bit lacking. Um, even, well, when I went through medical school, I wasn't taught how to deal with it Um, and, you know, there might be some little mentions of, okay, so if you see a colleague being bullied, the right thing to do is to go talk to the colleague and then, you know, escalate it, help them through it. But no one ever says, well, if you are being sexually harassed, this is how you should approach it.
1: It shouldn't be the junior doctor's problem to fix. And I get angry on your behalf. Um, I'm old enough now that I'm relatively untouchable by hospital powers that be, but you aren't. You've got your career ahead of you, you've got to maintain relationships, and we know that whistleblowers uh, get a terrible time. So it frustrates me no end to hear people saying, oh junior doctors ought to be more resilient and ought to stand up to this and ought to do this and ought to do that. Frankly you guys should do what you think is right Mm -hmm. and if that's protecting yourself, then it's the job of people like me who are much more immune um, to call out the behaviour. It shouldn't be the most uh, vulnerable people in the system who are responsible for trying to change the system. It never works that way. Mm. So I think um, that's one thing that I'm hoping that maybe there's a cluster of GPs and there's certainly a lot of us out there that are quite um, supportive and quite um strong, who are prepared to be the voice of junior doctors so that they don't have to throw themselves in the firing line because it's it's just not fair. And I think a lot of the uh, rhetoric around this about junior doctors needing to be more resilient and needing to stand up for your fellows and all that sort of thing, we all know very well that... There have been a lot of junior doctors who've called out this behaviour who've never worked in the field again. Mm. And it's the same in law, it's the same in the church, it's the same in schools, it's the same in government. So I think um, you have the right as junior doctors to make choices about what's in your own best interests and you're not responsible for trying to change a culture.
0: Uh,
1: That should be taken on by the whole profession, not just the most vulnerable parts.
0: Mm. Definitely. And hopefully, by having this um, conversation, um, you know, we'll make people more aware um, yeah. about all this. I mean, you know, I didn't even realize, like, I wasn't fully conscious of um, what had happened to me. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, sexual harassment of doctors by doctors. But another thing that's quite common is that it can be coming from patients, not you
1: know. Nurse absolutely, absolutely, all nursing stuff. Yeah. And I think one of the things is that we live in an environment where there's microaggressions all the time. So what a toxic microaggression is, is just little things that add up. And I often give the example that I looked after a specialist registrar of mine, a specialist non-GP specialist registrar, and um, who was from um, Somalia. And she had a patient, it's just appalling, accuse her of stealing money out of her wallet because that's what you people do. You know, people are people and people can be awful Mm. um, and incredibly racist and sexist. And After a while, it it starts to get under your skin and Mm. you tolerate things that you shouldn't tolerate because you're so used to it that it becomes normed. And we forget that for many of our colleagues, that's the world that they live in, especially you know, our, our um, culture in sexually diverse patients, um, our, uh, our colleagues, our Aboriginal colleagues particularly, um, it can be very difficult. And look, there's no female doctor out there who hasn't been thought of, no matter how they introduce itself. as, oh, when am I seeing the real doctor, nurse? When am I seeing the doctor? Yeah. You know, and those things, although they're not dangerous in themselves, they do lower your radar mm-hmm. and the thing i found in my study is that it's actually quite hard for people to recognize abuse for what it is mm. uh, they think they're being silly or they're being histrionic or you know they're being um they uh, i don't know they've got no sense of humor or all those sorts of things that you say to yourself to try and protect yourself and mm. and I, I think out there in the real world you know people still believe that um sexual harassment occurs in dark alleys with strangers yeah you know trying to get you to understand that it it can happen in a busy ward in the middle of the day um, people don't believe that and so you start questioning yourself and thinking you're going mad which yep. of course you aren't
0: mm. so like you mentioned there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings what sexual harassment actually is and constitutes so um, Louise, can you please explain to us exactly what is sexual harassment? Is it a subjective and based on the individual's experience? Like, what exactly is
1: it? So, it's unwanted is the first thing. Um, sexual harassment has to firstly be sexual in nature. Other than that, there are obviously there's a there's a spectrum. And the hard thing about doctors is we spend all the hours known to man, um, often residential mm-hmm. things. And we do partner with our colleagues, so that makes it quite difficult. I mean, many of us form partnerships with other doctors, Mm -hmm. so, you know um – flirting occurs on the wards Mm -hmm. all the time Mm -hmm. and it's trying to work out what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and yes there is a gray area Mm -hmm. but there are some areas that are not gray so it can be unwanted touching it can be unwanted comments it can be um you know frequent texts stalking all the way up up to rape but the hardest ones of course um are ones that are more subtle the trouble is that with sexual harassment it's often a pattern of behavior and if you know, you're unsure, then the best thing to do is to talk in general terms to a colleague and, and see what a colleague says because you start to second-guess yourself, I think. Mm. Um, but I think it is difficult because, you know, we we live together in a way that often others don't. Um, and I think that's sometimes why uh, people can misinterpret sexual harassment and say things like, oh, well, it was just, you know, she just couldn't take a joke or... Um, she um, she misinterpreted. It was just an overture for friendship, but sometimes it's downright blatant. Mm. Um, so the sorts of things that I saw were not simple, gosh, I love your nice short skirt, darling, and none of that, although that's very inappropriate. Mm. It was things like um, getting hundreds and hundreds of texts Um, and being followed home and being inappropriately touched and those sorts of things. So that's definitely in the domain of sexual harassment. And certainly, you know, when someone is asked, could you please not do that, or you're making someone else in the group uncomfortable, Mm. um, then it's pretty obvious what's going on.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if, say, um, someone who's a third person, you know, Um, witnessing all this, you know, how can they identify that, you know, someone is being sexually harassed and, you know, step in?
1: Yeah, look, I think there's power in numbers. I think... And and don't forget your specialist colleagues who aren't the colleague in question. So one of the things that we talked about is the important role of Mm anaesthetists, So unless, of course, the anaesthetists are doing the abusing, but, you know, it's often surgeons. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things about surgeons is that you're in really close proximity and there is that sort of performative aspect of surgery. So you do get some surgeons, as I'm sure you've come across, who are very flamboyant characters. And, (laughs) you know, one likes to think that they don't realise how obnoxious they can be but you know maybe they do but you know there are some of those types of personalities that tend to be attracted to surgery yeah and I think um there there is a real role for anesthetists Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think you know finding the other consultant in the room is a really good thing or finding the registrar Mm -hmm. um and talking to the registrar and saying look this person's making me feel uncomfortable and I'm not sure whether I'm being ridiculous but can you just tell me what you think, you know, Mm. uh, I I think is a really important thing. Sometimes the nursing staff will call them out. Um, It's not often, but they will. Mm -hmm. But if it's junior doctors or medical students, there needs to be a pack of you really Mm. so that it's de-identified because otherwise, um, you know, the hospital in the nicest possible way, despite the rhetoric and despite the policy frameworks, um, if they have a choice between the only senior neurosurgeon and the medical student... Um, there's going to be all sorts of pressure mm-hmm. for them to uh, decide to, you know, excuse the behaviour of the neurosurgeon. And we've seen that over and over again. Yep. So if you're going to call out that behaviour, you really need a statesman. And there are statesmen on your side. There will be seniors, even if it's a physician on another team that you know and you like and you're able to say – can I have an off-the-record discussion because I'm feeling really uncomfortable about something and I'm not sure what to do. There's often people like that in the hospital who've got nothing to do with the team you're involved in, who are able to deal with things and give you good advice in that context but aren't going to um, downgrade your professionalism ratings, which is what happened with a couple of my participants once they reported. So I think... um, the first thing I would say is it's a bit like the curriculum. There's the there's the written curriculum and there's the hidden curriculum. Mm. There's the curriculum you're given and there's the one that actually gets used. Mm. And I think with policies, there's the policies that are written down and then there's the actual policies. Mm-hmm. And your job is really to work out what actually happens in the hospital, not what they say is going to happen. And, and I think senior staff know that. Senior staff have been there long enough to know that really – you know, I wouldn't go along this angle or I wouldn't go along that angle and this is why. Hmm. So I think those conversations are incredibly important to have with someone that you trust. And if you want to go out outside the hospital altogether, your your medical defence organisation can have those conversations too. Right. Um, and certainly if you can find a good GP, and the AMA has a list of doctors for doctors. Okay. So um, you can always go to the AMA and there will be a list. Um where, you know, there are doctors who look after doctors and they're the ones like me, I suppose, who are a bit senior and have done yep. this for a while and know that we work for you. We don't work for the hospital. Right. Um, and the other thing is, of course, is the doctor's health advisory service, which is free. Yep. And, I mean, you can call up there and call yourself Fred Smith or mm-hmm. Freda Jones and no one knows who you are and that's a free service and you can just ring up and give a scenario and they can give you some advice. And, again, that's, they're staffed by people like me, seniors in the field who know what we're doing. So there's a, there's a couple of avenues that you've got mm-hmm. but it's not something where I would just rest on the policies. I certainly had a participant who was actually harassed underneath a sexual harassment poster. So, you know, we all know it's like values, you know. Um, You you look at the value statements of the hospitals that say things like, you know, safe working hours and yet you guys, you know, aren't necessarily doing that. Maybe, Maybe I'm kidding myself but I'm assuming that that's not the case. Oh, yeah,
0: it's definitely not the case for a lot of hospitals and a lot of departments still, yeah unfortunately you're in
1: Queensland you, you know about the Queensland caffeine index don't you it's quite famous so about 20 years ago Queensland decided it would deal with its um, junior doctor fatigue problem by prescribing the amount of coffee you should drink when you're feeling really tired oh my
0: goodness and they had a
1: little a little card that you could put on the back of your tag to say you know if you're feeling this tired this is how many cups of coffee you need to have in order to it was a mm,
0: I didn't know about there. this that's ridiculous <laughs>
1: yeah yeah, I don't know how long ago. It was about 15
0: years ago now. Okay, yeah. I'm well, a little too famous. young, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you did mention already um, a couple of things that you have come across during your research project interviewing these yeah. um, junior doctors who were um, sexually abused by doctors. Um, can, can you please tell us a little bit more about um, what the key findings of this project um, were?
1: Yeah, sure. So firstly, it happens all over the world. So the statistics are um, internationally 59% of uh, medical students experience bullying or harassment of some sort and about a third sexual harassment. And it doesn't seem to matter where you are in the world. The character of that harassment changes, but the, the percentage doesn't. So, um, I've spoken to, you know, Japan and Scandinavia and Canada and England, and it's all the same. So, so firstly, it's not just an Australian problem. Um, the second thing is that the impact of sexual harassment is very long, so, um, People, when they experience severe harassment, often think about what might have made them vulnerable. So Mm. some of the things that make people vulnerable are having a past experience of harassment, especially if that was um, dismissed. So um, people who've had a history of childhood trauma or particularly um, a couple of my participants who'd um, been sexually harassed by teachers at high school and then they'd reported and the parents had told them that they were nasty, horrible people who were, you know, smearing Mr Jones's reputation and he's such a lovely man and how could you? Uh, I think subconsciously, and I do think it's subconscious, are uh, reluctant to report. I think they hadn't really thought about that until after the harassment.
0: Yeah.
1: I think um, there there is a period of time where women particularly doubt um, and, I, and I only interviewed women and I should say that of course same-sex predation occurs And um, I, but I didn't interview men and I didn't interview any same-sex partnerships so I know that's there but it would be a lot harder I think for, um, for those victims to come forward and talk but I think um, the other side of things is that it's difficult for people to recognize that it's abuse and I think part of that is that women particularly uh hospitals like you to be nice um and a lot of my participants said things about you know the blokes on the ward never had to bring morning tea and you know the women always have to make the teams work and everyone has to you know, have to be exceptionally nice to the nursing staff or Mm. you know you're seen as a feminazi and so that whole niceness thing Mm. um makes you think that the best way to be professional is just to um, keep going no matter what, keep keep treating the patient in front of you and don't make a fuss. Mm. And they said that was something that was, you know, I had nobody who turned around and belted the bloke behind them and told them in a very loud voice, take your hands off me. That felt very uncomfortable for everybody. And I think we are socialised in a way for Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um the other thing I learned was that there's a very long time if you do report and again you know this is the more severe end but it's an important severe end if you do report there can be years before the court case is heard and in that long length of time women are often under confidentiality agreements mm. so they often have years where they're still working in the same hospital as the perpetrator and sometimes even in the same team and they're not allowed to say anything so that's an extraordinarily difficult space And the colleges really have a responsibility to step up. And the John Kearsley victim, whose name was never revealed, she managed to get into a different hospital network and a different training team, which made her transition good. Um, And then there's this phase where, you know, it gets out into the media. And that's tricky because there's often a second layer of betrayal and often it's the senior women who give women a hard time. So the senior women with Carol and Tan all came out and said, well, she wore short skirts and low-cut tops and what do you expect? And we all knew she slept around and awful stuff. Uh, Not all of them, of course, but um, a lot of them. And so she was cast as this difficult Geminazi who was, you know, not appropriate and, uh, you know, the women really gave her a hell of a time. Um, and then there's this period of time where it, you know, after all that dust settles, trying to get your career back on track and that's, that's difficult. And I think, you know, for you guys who are much less likely to have that experience but certainly at some stage in your life are likely to be a bystander, I think the biggest thing for me was this idea of welcoming somebody back. It's yeah. something that we don't do very well. And one of my participants said, you know, Um, She felt like when she came back to work after five years of, you know, um, being out of work because of this whole drama, um, that she felt like she had to hug the walls because the floor wasn't welcoming for her. Mm. And I thought how awful that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, we like to think people are either heroes or they're villains. You know, they're either this great shining light like charlie teo for instance this week he's either (laughs) Uh you know the great hero or he's a terrible terrible awful person and he can't be both yeah people don't sort of cope with someone being both things yeah and so people tend to polarize
0: Mm. and
1: i think as bystanders you know to to resist that idea that everyone's either one thing or the other that you know um people can do horrible things even when they're fundamentally nice people and that doesn't excuse it but but otherwise you are sort of going well I either believe that they're nice or I believe they did this thing and they can actually be both and we can be more subtle about that and I think in if we are that makes it easier for us to help both well particularly the victim um, because the victim sometimes makes mistakes too as we all do yeah you know why didn't you say anything earlier well mm. you know why not? There's lots of reasons why you don't. So I think being forgiving of our colleagues and thinking that, you know, these things can happen in bright, shiny, surgical light areas, and they can happen in the light of day. And even though it sounds weird, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and continuing to work with them in a professional way is really important. Hmm. Sorry, that was a long answer that gives you an idea.
0: No, that was great. Yeah. So you, For this next question, you've already um, covered a lot of ground, but um, I thought maybe we can go through it again, make sure we don't – if there was anything else that you'd like to add to it, we can add to it maybe we can um, talk about like a scenario, you know, that has actually happened to myself or a colleague um, just so, um, you know, the listeners can have a better grasp of, you know – Yeah the examples that we're going to go through um so as you mentioned we can't unfortunately we can't just rely on the systems and policies that are put in place especially in hospitals at this day and age um at the moment anyway um and in terms of say when if a junior doctor and sometimes it's the case of when it happens because like you mentioned the statistics are ridiculously high yeah um you know, what are the practical steps, you know, that they can take? Like yeah. like you mentioned, like, it, it, you know, junior doctors don't just turn around and scream in the middle of a ward round, like, don't you dare touch me, you know, that sort of thing. We, we yeah. try our best to yeah. remain professional. So if that's the case, what can we do? Like, should we be, um, you know, calling it out on the spot or should we be taking that person, aside which might make us very uncomfortable to have a private conversation with that person say hey you make me very uncomfortable
1: yeah so I think there's different scenarios so if it's a patient Mm -hmm. so if you were in my general practice or you were in a I don't know a cubicle and a patient is I don't know inappropriately touching you or um displaying their genitalia for the hell of it or you know that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. then I think it is professional to call it out okay you know I think do not you look them straight in the eye and you say do not touch me like that again and you leave Mm -hmm. and you get someone else to see them or Mm -hmm. you see them with a chaperone okay okay and I think that is the same no matter where you are that's a safety question That's mm-hmm. uh, no different to someone hauls a knife on you in the middle of a wardrobe you know you just don't you shouldn't have to handle that with the power of your words alone mm-hmm. um you are able to say you know this bloke is masturbating in front of me or i don't know he's touched me on the breast or whatever he's done um and and just call it and leave and that's You know, you should be prepared to do that. And if you're in a more general practice setting, one of the things I I would tell you is that you should always be closest to the door. Mm -hmm. So particularly in areas where you are at risk. And we know that a third of women, female, female women, women, rural doctors um, suffer an assault at some stage in their life of some description. So we know that, you know, those techniques are really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing I would encourage you to do is to watch, you know, if you've got a little bit of time, I know that's a laugh, but if you do have a little bit of time, watch what the security guards do and the police.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: just ask them, you know, can you give me a few skills for when a patient's starting to get dysregulated in front of me? How can I manage that more effectively? If you've got a little bit of time, it's worth asking because that is a question that you can learn in A&E. And in mental health. And I think it's something we don't learn and we don't ask and we should. Okay. So the AMBOS, the COPS, they're very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just watch what they do because they're really effective. Mm-hmm. And now I know they're also in uniform and they've got guns and they've generally got <laughs> authority and there's a lot of other things they do that we don't do. Yeah. But just watch how they de-escalate and, yeah. and pick up some techniques. So okay. I think that's in terms of patience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot more tricky when um, – when you're in general practice because you see patients over a long period of time. But remember, the patient has to be seen. They don't have to be seen by you. Mm. So we have an obligation to see them, but we don't have an obligation to do it ourselves. Right. Particularly if it makes us feel unsafe, okay? Mm. So there's no reason why the large footy playing future orthopedic surgeon bloke can't, you know, manage the young bloke is being horrible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, or you can't do it with a nurse at your back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing to say with patience. When it's a colleague of your level, mm-hmm. I think it's very different to when it's a senior. Okay. So, you know, when it's a colleague at your level, um, you've got to make a decision in your own head whether it's a, something clumsy or something aggressive, okay. um, I, I think. So occasionally you will get people, as you well know, who... Might say something inappropriate, but they're just socially inept. And in that case, you look at them and you say, oh, "Look, I prefer you didn't comment on my outfit like that again, please," or whatever it might be. But you've got to look them in the eye and tell them that. Um, and you know, if if they're a lot more uh, incapable of getting the message, then sometimes it takes a few of you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and don't be afraid. Um, you know, we, we workshopped this at ANU and one of the things we said was there's quite a value in having mixed genders in that group okay. and having um, people observers. So if someone's around when this behavior happens, um, you know, think about whether or not you might get together with the three of you and have a coffee. Rather than just you and this other person, you know, to so have a bystander with you is actually quite helpful okay. to try and de-escalate the situation, particularly if it's a peer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's a senior, you're in a more difficult space. Yeah. And I think you get your ducks in a row. You you talk to someone externally. You put the scenario, assuming that, you know, you're not in a terrible situation where you're actually at awful risk. So you've got two scenarios, I think. You've got you've got the scenario where every time you see this surgeon he comments or he gives you a slap on the back or he, you know, does something and every time you see him it's like that and you're getting more and more uncomfortable. That's the most common scenario. And in that case, I'd be talking to the nursing staff and you know, people around the situation to try and work out what your options are, mm-hmm. um, including some of those people that I mentioned earlier that you might get a bit of a, a framework. Yeah. And sometimes you can get a bunch of you going up to the training advisor and saying, or the G- JMO head, mm. saying, look, we've all had this experience of this bloke and he's inappropriate behavior. I don't even know if he knows what he's doing, but, you know, there's a group of us because then it dilutes it and you're not in the firing line. Yeah. Um, If it's a case of significant sexual assault, then you've got a different question altogether. And I would say that that's where someone like me is a good call because you can sit in my room and you and I can sort of sort out what you want. You do not have to follow a protocol. You, You make your own choices. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I don't want to say anything at this point in my career, I just don't, I, I, I just want to forget it and move on and think about it later. Okay. You have every right to make your own choice, mm-hmm. no matter what the policy says.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
1: think you need someone outside of the hospital to mentor you in that and make decisions mm-hmm. um, that are in your best interests and, you know, think through all your options and decide what it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um But you shouldn't feel bullied into, oh, if you don't stand up for them, no one's going to, and if you don't do it, he'll do it to someone else and it's your responsibility. That's just rubbish. Um, That's not true. You're not responsible for anyone else but you. And um, if, if something needs to be done, it doesn't have to be done by you. It could be done by the whistleblowers around you. It doesn't have to be you that does the work. And why should the victim be the one that has to do all the work and put their career at risk having already gone through something that's awful it's not right Mm. so i guess i I would just encourage you to at least have that conversation
0: that would mean um that we we are to an extent relying on those other senior people to help speak up for us but what happens if they don't what happens if they are not comfortable with it, and um, decide not to do anything.
1: Well, then you've got your own conscience to deal with, haven't you? Mm. But there's always ways and means. I guess what I'm saying is, is just be clever. Don't necessarily follow the obvious route. Okay. Think about, you know, when we go out and we resuscitate someone on the road, what's the first thing we say? Don't put yourself in danger. Yeah. You know, and I think... There are ways that you can do that. You have mandatory reporting, okay? You have mm-hmm. mandatory reporting to the board if somebody is drunk on duty. Mm. You can do that without revealing who you are. Mm. So there's a lot of ways that you can do this other than bailing up the key surgeon in front of all his colleagues and telling him you think he's pissed. I, I just think that's an incredibly dangerous thing for you to do in terms of your career. Yeah. So – I think being thoughtful about that and thinking, okay, well, here's the scenario. We've got someone who shouldn't be on duty that I'm concerned about his health and well-being. Um, my my approach would be to engage people more at his level that can have a better conversation with him so there's less shame involved yep. and say to him, who's obviously struggling, I mean, he might have mental health concerns, he might have a drug and alcohol problem. He doesn't want his intern when he's 60-something telling him he looks
0: drunk, yeah, you yeah. know,
1: but say, being able to say to the anaesthetist perhaps or um, even a, a, another consultant that you know, look, I'm really concerned about Dr X. He seems to not be coping. And the other day when he was in theatre and I didn't know what to say and I didn't, I didn't want to embarrass him in front of his colleagues, um, what do you think would be the way of, of approaching this means you're able to do that in a more sensitive way.
0: As I mentioned, there's an example that I thought I might bring up and, you know, it will be impossible to cover every single poss- possible scenario under the sun, but we've talked about, um, you know, senior doctors, doctors at the same level being the perpetrators and also patients um, being the perpetrators. Um, I specifically had this experience when I was working in um, addiction medicine um, last year yep. and there was a patient that I saw... Who's, who's vulnerable himself because, you know, he, he essentially came in for an alcohol detoxification and his family were going to um, abandon him, um, you know, completely ignore him and cut him out if he unless he quit drinking. And so um, I could see that he was in a very vulnerable place. However, he did make very inappropriate sexual... Uh, well, comments of sexual nature to me once or twice when, um, you know, I was in the examination room with him one-on-one. And, you know, looking back and knowing what I know now, I recognize it as a form of um, sexual harassment. But back then when I was there, I did not, you know, recognise it. And I thought, you know, this patient is just, you know, really unwell and vulnerable, you know. It's uh, not his fault, you know that sort of thing. It's, it's so easy to dismiss it. So, um, you know, are there, is there anything else or any approach that we can take when dealing with patients that are in special situations?
1: Yes. Firstly, the intent has got nothing to do with it. So if a patient throws a chair at me Mm -hmm. because they're psychotic, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, I still am not safe, Yeah. whether or not, they mean it or they don't mean it is mm-hmm. irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you've got to do is take the intent out of it because otherwise you just feel guilty. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's vulnerable. Yeah, he's in a really difficult space and he's probably disinhibited because he's on goodness knows what and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter. Um, think of the sexual advances being um, uh, physical violence and it helps you. So... Mm-hmm. If a patient throws a chair at me or draws a knife on me, then I don't care that he thinks that I look like his mother that he hates or that yep. he um, I'm part of his delusion or whatever it is. Um, my job is to get the hell out of there okay. because danger comes first. Mm-hmm. So the, the hardest thing in sexual stuff is that we don't – um, react quickly enough we give people far too much scope and it's because we're socialized into this sort of oh they don't mean it they're just joking it's not intentional you know yada 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 we should be taking it as a compliment sometimes or you know mm. oh he's just trying to be nice or you know n- none of that yep. um see see the behavior for what it is the behavior is risky the behavior is it's not helpful and you know it it means that it's hard to be a good clinician when you're protecting yourself. If you're protecting yourself, you can't really be such a good clinician. So so the the first response is to recognize that the behavior is inappropriate. And you can do one – you can do the super nanny thing and do the warning. Um, mm. Please don't make a comment like that again or I'm going to have to leave. I'm sorry – or not even I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I have to leave now mm. and, and just leave. Yep. Um, and – you know, set yourself up in a better circumstance, conduct the interview in an open place with another person and all the rest of it. Okay. And in terms of safety, you have to say to your team, look, you know, this is what's happened in the room. I'm not prepared to see this person on my own. Um, How are we going to manage this? I think one thing I did want to say is remember that as doctors, we have structured breaks down in intimacy. So in order to do our job, we have to talk about testicles and we have to examine pelvises and we have to discuss sex and we have to do all these things and we have to live on side. Okay. All those things break down um, normal social codes of intimacy. Lawyers don't have that. Teachers don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes you can find in tea rooms people can start on a conversation about gynecology that turns nasty and starts getting really unpleasant and it bleeds into something that's really personal and really awful. Mm-hmm. So it's another thing to um, to think about and certainly it's something that, that I've noticed um, can sometimes be – the lead-in to people who are a little bit off-colour. Mm. They like to make jokes about sex or they like to make jokes about women's bodies and as though it's clinical but it's not. Right. That that behaviour is, is worth noting. If it makes you uncomfortable, you're not being a prude, you're not being awful. I still feel guilty that I was about 26 and I was doing a Diploma of Obstetrics and I think I was pregnant at the time and I was chairing a, an obstetrics conference that was sort of teaching young GPs about um, delivering babies. And this guy stood up and he was talking about gynecological oncology and he he showed this photo of a woman from the foot end who was in stirrups, a bigger sort of middle-aged woman, and said, oh, that's what I have to put up with every Monday morning. Mm. And I still wish I'd had the guts to actually call him out on it. And, of course, at 25 I didn't. I was was, um, intimidated by that, but it was just – you know, it took me about a day or so before I went, that was a really awful thing to do. Like, mm. that is so horrible. But at the time, it just almost didn't register. Yep. And I think, you know, watching out for when um, clinical discussion becomes personal unpleasantness and sexualised discussion um, is also really important and thinking about how to, you know, just leave those discussions and not be part of them, I think is important
0: too. So final question from me to you, Louise, is, um, you know, given you're so busy with so many um, things that you're working with and um, your various interests, can you please tell us one or two things that keep you sane in your crazy busy life?
1: When you get more senior, you get to choose your jobs. And it is hard as a junior doctor and a registrar because, you have a lot less autonomy, and I think one of the things that's really important to know that is that as you get more senior, you you are an important person who can choose how you work and what you do. And um, there are times when I donate my time quite deliberately. So this research project, for instance, was not there was no funding, so that was all just done on weekends and nights. And I make that choice because that's something. I want to do and I choose to do, but I don't choose to work in environments that work me into the ground and make me um, work in a way that I don't feel comfortable. So I think – The thing that burns you out most is what we call moral distress, this idea that you know what the right thing to do is but you can't do it because the structures and systems are in place and they don't let you do what the right thing is. Mm. And you are stuck sometimes in positions of moral distress as a junior. You don't have to be when you graduate and um, you fellow and so on. And I just would really encourage you, yeah, sure, all the, the yoga in the world and the exercise and the good diet and, and the rest of it, and that's really important, and I, I'm not belittling that at all. Mm. But, but just know that, firstly, it gets a lot better, mm-hmm. but secondly, that it's okay to choose the environments in which you want to work, the people that you want to work with, the, the sort of work that you want to do. The hardest work in the world is easy if you feel like you're doing the right thing with the right people. Yeah. Even if it's a a 20-hour-a-day job, you know, if you feel like you're making a difference and you feel like it it aligns with your values, it's fine. Um, Put you somewhere where you can't do a good enough job, where you're failing every day to meet need and there's a million things you could have done that would have made a difference and you can't do them and it will burn you out quicker than anything. So I think um, the one thing that I've learned in a long career of doing bits and pieces and, uh, you know, lots of different things is just trying to um, get that together. And the other thing is to know that work-life balance is a dynamic thing. It's not something where you ever achieve it. It's like walking on a tightrope. You're correcting all the time.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, Louise.
1: Yeah, you're welcome.
0: So um, anyone else that is currently on the live with us, um, so we'll give you a couple of minutes. If you have any questions at all, now's the time to Um, post them in the comments section before we wrap up. So if you don't have time... Oh, I think I just got a question that's come through. Um, You know, I'll leave um, Louise's contact details. um, Yep, happy for that. Yeah, so that you guys can talk to her yourselves and, um, you know, have a private discussion if that makes it more comfortable for you. Um, So I'm just going to... Um, Read out this question that was sent to me. I won't say who it's from. But thank you so much to the person who has sent it. So... This person says, you both talked a lot about the practical measures juniors, um, including students and junior doctors, can do in an uncomfortable situation, so talk to colleagues, trusted registrars, nurses, but I think it does become a lot more difficult when the persons doing the bullying, harassing, are also the ones signing off on your evaluations and assessments. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yep, and it's a yep. um. Sorry, there's a bit more as students or even uh or even throughout training, you know, as registrars as well, they need to get assessment signs. So um, this person says, I feel like it's a situation where no matter what you do and in trying to do the right thing, there will be repercussions anyway. Yes, maybe they will be held responsible for their behavior, but then there's also risks that you cop flack or uh, making a big deal about things and get an unfavorable reputation as a troublemaker. It's really hard. Um, does Louise have any comments about being in this kind of situation?
1: Yes. The first thing I'd say is you're absolutely right. And um, the participants in my study said that their two of them said when they reported their marks for professionalism and interpersonal communication plummeted. And um, you know that's that's the way it works. I, I think there are seasons and times. You know these behaviours are patterns, aren't they? They're not something or they're rarely, unless you've got one person who's obsessed with another person, there are often patterns of behavior that occur over a long period of time. Um, You don't have to report when you're in a position of of, uh, relative weakness, and that includes being assessed by that person, and you don't have to be identifiable. So the College of Surgeons, for instance, in its operate with respect campaign allows for anonymous reporting, mm. um, and if there's more than X number of anonymous reports, then they will raise it, even though there's no attribution. If that makes sense, so I think you're right. I think you know you are in a really vulnerable position. You're not going to complain about your consultant while you're in the job. Yeah. You certainly, um, if you're sensible and if you if you're able. So, there's two things there, and I I didn't mean that to be judgmental, but um, you know, if I was in that position, I'd be thinking of ways of getting out of that team. And I think most people do. Um, Most people find ways of maybe I could work in the district hospital, or I could work in, I could do my next term in that particular discipline somewhere else, or I could use a different consultant, or Tell the training advisor that I want to work with a different consultant so I can expand my repertoire of skills or find some way of getting yourself around it. Mm. Um, But you're absolutely right. And this is why I object to this idea that junior doctors have a responsibility to report according to the policies. I, I don't think you do. I think... The reality is that whistleblowers do suffer the consequences, the career consequences. I'm, I'm going to applaud anyone who is prepared to put themselves on the line like that, but I sure as heck aren't going to blame anyone who doesn't. Mm. You know, you have to get through your training, and it's a small world. Um, now, people will disagree with me on that and say that, you know, if people don't report, then we will never get any better and so on. Yes, that's true, but you don't have to report from a position of weakness. Yeah. Um, and you shouldn't be judged if you make that call. If you make the call that it's not safe to report, well, that's a sensible decision. And oh, and the other thing I should say is if it's an assault, then it's a matter for the police, not for the Human Resources Department. Mm. The, the one thing I didn't say was that um, Human Resources, you know, their responsibility at the end of the day is to protect the institution, not to protect you. Mm. They're employed by the hospital, not by you. So they are trying to balance everyone's interests. If somebody is sexually assaulted, and this is if you're a bystander in that sort of scenario where somebody is sexually assaulted, and by that I mean, you know, within the boundaries of the law, so that includes things like, you know, someone exposing themselves to you right up to, you know, sexual assault um, and rape. In that scenario, it's a matter for the police. It's not a matter for the human resources department. So, you know, you have to think about those things too. Mm. And that's what rape crisis centres are for. So get some expertise in that mix. And if you're supporting someone in that space, um, then at least think, you know, if it was fraud, we wouldn't take it to HR, we'd take it to the police. If it was assault, we'd take it to the police. We should take it to the police if it's sexual assault too. We just often think we shouldn't Some. We'd
0: way Mm. yeah well thank you so much for that louise and thank you so much for jumping on live and um, answering our questions
1: not a problem good night everybody and look all the best if you want to send me an email i'm perfectly happy
0: yeah i'll include it in with the podcast bye louise thank you if you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't
1: forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.